We want to be in Exodus chapter 19. We will spend some time in 1 Peter 2, as Mike read for us. Uh, if you're using the Bible that's supplied for you in the chair, it's page number 60. Exodus 19. As I came back a couple weeks ago uh, from, from being on vacation, um, Terry said, I wanted to thank you, uh, you know, because when I spoke, you know, you were short the week before, so I used up your time. Now, Terry's kind of new at this. What he doesn't realize is that time is not transferable. I'm saving that up uh, for, for other opportunities. So it's something that work in progress, Terry, but we'll... Uh, Exodus 19, verses 1 through 6, I want to read for us this morning. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called out to him of the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you would indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's go to him and get in prayer. God, this morning we would ask that you would be speaking through your word. You've given it to us so that we might understand more of who you are, more of who we are, and more of our need for a Savior in Jesus Christ. Make that clear to us. Father, as we come together, Lord, we we often ask that we would see more of you, that we would see your glory. And many times in the scriptures, as people are confronted with you and your glory, Lord, it's it's less of a... uh, joyous celebration and more of a humbling and a falling down and an understanding of of how great you are and how how wicked and how uh, desperate we truly are so would you give us humble hearts that are bowed before you Lord? we are thankful that as we come into your presence that you love us because of jesus that you are for us, you're not against us, that you are working in our lives as your people, that you're setting us apart, as we'll talk this morning to be a special people. So Lord, let that truth sink in as we get into this portion of scripture today. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we are in Exodus 19. Israel is... In just a chapter, Exodus 20, you're probably familiar with, we'll be receiving the Ten Commandments. Uh, Moses will go up to the mount, he'll receive these commands, and 
the, the covenant here, we, the Mosaic covenant, we, will, we would say, is, is, is in motion. And God is working through his servant Moses, working through the people of Israel. Much time has passed since Israel has come out of Egypt. Uh, we've been through as a church a series in Exodus, and that coming out of Egypt as God miraculously delivers his people through the coming uh, of the plagues on Egypt that culminated in the killing of the firstborn of Egypt, the Passover, and then as they left Egypt and fled and, and Egypt pursued them, we know the miracle of the parting of the Red Sea and then that sea collapsing back on the armies of Pharaoh and delivering his people. And since then, they've been They've been spending day after day wandering in the wilderness, eating uh, manna, eating quail that's been miraculously provided, day after day uh, waiting for the presence of God, either from the pillar of the cloud or fire to direct them, to guide them to where they would go, go next. And then you come to Exodus 19, and it's really a huge moment for Moses. If you remember back in Exodus 3, in verse number 12, when God calls Moses out, he, he says, I will bring you to this mount again, where you will lead my people. And so it, it's really a moment of, for Moses, God has not forgotten me. God is fulfilling the promise that he promised to me back in Exodus chapter 3. He's using me. He's working, me, working in me to lead his people. And he's right here with me in this crucial time. God has continued to be faithful to his people, people Going all the way back to Adam and Eve, he's been faithful to his promises. He's building on those promises that he would send one, a deliverer, that would ultimately crush the head of the, the snake, Satan, uh, from his deceit in the garden. And God continues to prove himself true, continues to prove himself a trustworthy God. We have our theme on the screen here that I would like, to, like us to read together. Uh, God has proven himself true, therefore we can trust him in everything. Let's, let's say that all together. God has proven himself true, therefore we can trust him in everything. But as you, as you we don't have the time to, to go fully into, you know, from Exodus uh, 12, as they were delivered out, go through all the chapters leading up to 19. But get, to give a little context... As these people are wandering in the wilderness with no real direction, I think it would be easy to see how the people started to wonder, has God forgotten about us? I mean, is he really going to do what he said he, he's going to do? And if you remember, these are people that have had that question before. They've complained and they've actually thought, hey, maybe I should go back to Egypt because it would be better for us there than wandering in the wilderness with no food and no water and and." Is God really going to be faithful to his promises? Is God really present with us? I mean, we can identify with that. Because like us, they wanted stability. They wanted a place to call home. They weren't wanting to just wander from place to place with no real direction. And I think it would be easy for them easy for us to see why they would not feel special. I mean, we're talking about this morning a promise 
that God was going to make them a special people. God was going to create a special people, a people that weren't special, but now he's going to make them special. And they're clinging to these promises coming out of Egypt, but yet there's a real sense of, I don't feel special. The excitement, the allure of being delivered miraculously from Egypt is gone Israel was waiting for this comfort. They were waiting for this land. They were waiting for abundant food. They were waiting for peace. They were waiting for safety. They were waiting for all these things to flood into their lives. And and here they are with none of that, at least in the way that they were looking at it. And really, this is not any different from our experiences, because for some of us, Right? The excitement and allure of salvation, being redeemed from our sin, being saved miraculously from sin and death, knowing that we have eternal life, that allure for some of us has faded. It's not as exciting as it used to be. Because after salvation, we've, we've waited and we've expected God to give us this easy life, good health, a nice career, a great marriage, good kids... We've, await, we've waited for this, this, this pie-in-the-sky life because, because we're, we're people of God. We're trusting in God, and so God should be blessing us this way. And here I am in my life, and I feel like Israel, wandering, waiting, with no direction, wondering if God has forgotten us. And so here I come with a message this morning That's supposed to be basically this. You are God's special people. I mean, that's that's the theme of this sermon. That's what I do want to communicate. That's what I think this text is communicating. But right now, you you don't feel like that. In fact, you might be saying to yourself, and I could hear the objections, I don't feel special. In fact, I feel I feel abandoned. I feel alone. I, I feel like God is, is overlooking me and, and everybody else is being blessed and I'm here struggling. And our family is struggling. And my marriage is struggling. Where is God in all of this? I would dare say that for some of us, our view of being a Christian is, is simply, hey, I'm clinging to this hope of heaven, but I, I certainly don't feel special now. And I certainly don't feel like there's much hope in this life. So I'm just waiting for that day that, that I'll get heaven. The reality is we, we all want to feel special. I, I like feeling special. We may not all want to be famous, we may not all want to be the center of attention, but we all desire to feel loved, to feel valued by someone. For some of us, that's the reason that we got married, because someone is making me feel special. This morning, let me just ask you this, what are some ways that you seek to feel, fill this desire, this need to feel loved, this need to feel valued? Maybe it's through your family. Maybe it's through your work, your career. I can please my boss. They make me feel special. 
or I get more money, that makes me feel special. Maybe it's through sports and athletics. Maybe it's through the things that we possess. Maybe it's through our grades. Maybe it's through behaviors. Maybe it's through these fantasy worlds that we create, whether that's, whether that's video games, whether that's pornography. These things are making us feel like we're valued. Maybe it's through the labels that we wear. It could be political labels. It could be labels like LGBTQ. So now I'm, I feel like I'm a part of something. I feel like I'm special in some way. I'm valued by someone. Maybe it's just through causes or movements that we involve ourselves with. And, and really the list could go on and on because there's so many outlets that, that we run to to make ourselves feel special. But here's, here's the truth this morning. Satisfying this desire to feel loved and to feel valued, to feel special, only comes through a relationship with God. I'm just going to put that out there. And whatever we're pursuing, we're always going to be continuing to pursue something else until we realize that my value and the, the, the love that I'm seeking and the thing that I'm seeking to fill in my life is only going to come through a relationship with the one true God. For Christians here this morning, we we are going to see in this text that a special God has set his gaze on you and is making you feel special. I should say making you special. And you'll, you, you should feel that. You should see that. But for those of us who are still considering Christianity, or maybe you say, I really don't believe in any of this stuff. I have a totally different belief structure in my life. I think this text will help you to understand God's plan in this world and his desire for you. God promises to make a special people. That's what we're going to look at. And here's where I want to start this morning. If if I'm outlining here, I would have three main points, beginning with this point. God is special. God is special. In verse number four in our text, God is speaking through Moses. He's telling, this is what I want you to tell the people. He says, you yourself see, have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and how I brought you to myself. Right? This, so when we're talking about being special and, and feeling valued and loved and, and feeling special ourselves, Right? The, the feeling of being special only goes as far as the person whose attention that we're seeking. So if I could say it like, as an example, okay? If, if uh, a, a, a child is playing in a game, if a teen's playing in a, in a sporting event, or they're, they're in some kind of a play, or they're singing in a performance, and there's a thousand people in the audience, right? But they're looking for that one person. Or those two people. They're looking for their dad and their mom. But you could say, wait, there's, there's all these other people here. Why does it matter? Because that child sees something special in their parents. Those people are special to them, which in turn makes them feel special because they are there watching them. They are there supporting them. Other examples that we could think of. 
You know the painting, or you may, you've probably seen this painting before, The Starry Night, right, by Van Gogh. What makes that painting special if you were to own it? The person that painted it, right? It's why there's, there's laws against, uh, you know, forgery and fraud, because the value in the painting is the person that painted it, is the, is the creator of that. And I mean, you could go on and on as teens, right? You have a, you have a crush on somebody, guys. And what do you, what do you say? You, you might, maybe you're walking down the hall and you bump into this crush. And what's the first thing? She touched me. She touched me. Well, all these other people are bumping into you, but who cares? That person is special to me. Or for girls, maybe. You know, he liked my post online. He did. And we read into all of what that means. But there's something special about the person which brings value to us. So this is really where the promise starts. If we don't grasp the specialness of God, who God is, then we're not going to grasp the promised good news that he's bringing to us. Right? God is a -a one-of-a-kind, amazingly special God. And it's this God that is making a special people. It's this God that we want to, to, to gain his favor and to see for him to see value in us. Because really, at the end of the day, nothing else matters. It doesn't matter what our neighbors think of us. It doesn't matter what our bosses think of us. Okay, I'm speaking broad strokes here. Of course, we, we don't want them to, to, to think you know, that we're lazy and things like that. But you get my point. God's favor matters most. And it's really the, the only favor that matters. He's the one that will make us feel special. So God is special. I want to just pull out three things. Of course, we could go to every attribute of God to see how he is special. But just three things here in our text. I want to look at, first of all, God is creator, okay? This is not explicitly mentioned in the text, okay? But I think it would be understood by the people of Israel, I think it's seen by the people of Israel as they wander in the wilderness and they're seeing things like God is bringing water out of a rock. Can anybody here bring water out of a rock? No, we're not the creators of the rock. We're not the creators of these things. God is doing something miraculous. Uh, he's, God's providing manna and quail from, from nothing as the, the dew falls and This food is miraculously provided. He's using a cloud and fire to demonstrate his presence. I think really all actions that point to God being the supreme creator of the whole world and and everything in it. So you think about every amazing detail of creation. He's the designer. He's the designer of everything we see in this world. The complexity of our universe, the sun, moon, and stars, and planets that, they, that have been ordered in such a way that as we look up into the sky at night and we see the beauty of that and the order of that, God is the designer. He's the creator. And it demonstrates his power and his glory and his creativ- creativity. And it shows that he is a special God. Because when we look at that creation, what do we do? We go, wow. That's amazing. I couldn't do that. 
So God is the creator, but then in, in maybe a similar vein, but I think distinct, God is owner. If you notice verse number five, he says, you shall be my treasure possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. So after God creates the world, he doesn't relinquish control of it. He doesn't say, I'm just leaving this up to chance. I'm leaving it up to, 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 you know, to, to the people of the earth. He's actually still owner of all things. Everything this, in this world, including your car and your house that have your deed, you know, your name on the deed that says you own it. Well, guess what? God actually is the owner of all things. He's, the, he's not only the owner, but as, he, as the owner, he's the sustainer of all things. He's upholding all of the universe all at once. The Bible tells us that he knows every hair on your head. For some of you, he knows every hair that has fallen out myself included. Despite what we may think, we are not our own masters. We are not our own owners. This life is not ours. It's not ours to just say, do what you want. Do what makes you feel good. God is the ultimate owner. And one day you will give an account to God. We see God's specialness in that he's creator, that he's the owner Verse number four, we have a reminder of his faithfulness and redemption. And we want to look at God is special because he is the deliverer. I, re- I read verse four for you already. But again, it's, it's that reminder, hey, I am faithful to you. I have been faithful. I am your redeemer. I provided redemption for you. And notice he says, this is what I rem- remind them what I did to the Egyptians through the plagues and the Passover, the parting of the sea. I've delivered you from the famine and the drought as you wandered in the wilderness. God was ultimately their deliverer. God reminds them of this. Then God says this, I bore you on eagles' wings. My, when, I re- when I read that, my mind immediately went to uh, uh, Lord of the Rings, probably one of my favorite trilogy movies. And as Gandalf is there on the tower, trapped by the enemy with nowhere to go, not seemingly defeated, all of a sudden he jumps off the edge of the tower and off screen. And then a couple seconds later, there he is riding on the back of an eagle, taking him to safety. That's kind of what came to my mind as I read that. But, but that's sort of the picture. One author summarizes it in a nutshell. What, what he's saying here is the picture of an eagle is, is one of speed, power, security, and care. So in those days, before we could fly airplanes and before we had all the tech that we have today, the, the speed of eagles was really unmatched. So there, there is a very vivid understanding for the people, hey, this is a swift deliverance, that nothing can catch this eagle. They're, they're, you think about eagles, they can carry twice their body weight. So God is powerful and able to deliver his people. And, and what I found interesting in reading about eagles was in those days, there was really no way to hunt them. I mean, unless you got an eagle on the ground, they flew so high and so fast that 
you couldn't really hunt an eagle. So the whole picture here is, is God is delivering his people powerfully and swiftly and, and in a way that no enemy is going to, 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 to bring him down. No enemy is going to capture his people because he's caring for them as an eagle would care for his, her young. Deuteronomy 32.11 describes the Lord in a very similar way. It says, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them aloft. This is how God is described as a deliverer to his people. So God is saying, look, I, I, am, I am delivering you. I have delivered you. I'm caring for you. And really, what does he say at the end of verse number four? Now I have brought you to myself. Literally, I brought you to this mountain where I'm going to meet you. And we're not going to get into the, the, the commandments and the warnings here at the end of chapter 19. But God has taken his people out of bondage and slavery to Egypt, and he's brought them all the way to himself, just like he promised Moses, just like he promised the people. And this in itself was a miracle. God was special then, but God is just as special today. He's still the creator of all things. He's still the owner and sustainer of the world. He's still the deliverer, and he delivers his people from the enemy. This is not a physical enemy like, like, they, like it was in Egypt. We would say a spiritual enemy. He's delivering us from the bondage of sin. He's taking, out of the, uh, taking us out of that bondage, and he's bringing us to himself. So Christian, this morning, God is swift, and he's powerful, and he's secure, and he's a caring eagle who has miraculously delivered you from destruction. He's brought you to himself. He's brought you near to himself. And so if there's anyone's favor you should be seeking this morning, it is this special God. His opinion of you matters most. We want to start there. But secondly, we we do want to consider that just as God is special, this special God sets his gaze on an unworthy people. Or a people that are just not special. Now, I, I do want a side note here. All of God's creation is, is special because God created it. You as a human are special, so much so that God said, if someone takes the life of a person, their life would be required of them. You are created in God's image. So in that regard, all of God's creation, all people are special. But here in this promise, God is setting his attention on a people to set them apart from the rest of creation. Okay, so he's taking his special creation and he's setting a people apart to be, I don't know, I'll say extra special. The focus of his attention, the apple of his eye. And it's clear from our text that God sets his sight on a particular people. Um, he, 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 just, he says in verse number three, thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, so he's looking to the people of the house of Jacob, tell the people of Israel, and obviously he's, he's saying this to Moses, and to the people he's, he's, got, he's saying you, I'm directing my gaze to you, 
says that over and over. And then at the end of verse number six, these are the words that you shall speak, not just to anybody, not just to the world at large, but to the people of Israel. Now, Israel was not a great people. They weren't even a nation at this point. They were wanderers. They were nomads. Nothing special about Israel. They weren't even worthy of God's focus. Okay, verses 12 and 13. Let me just read those because it, it kind of informs us who Israel is or what kind of people they are. When God says, look, I want you to gather the people to the mount. But then in verse 12, he says this. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the edge of the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him. But he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So God is saying, look, I want you to gather the people of Israel here, but... Here's the warning. Don't touch the mountain. This is a holy place. I am coming down to this mountain. And why could they not touch the mountain? Because they were a wicked people. They were a sinful people. They weren't worthy to come to God. They weren't worthy to to, to touch this mountain. So God's very clear. Here's who Israel is. They are complainers. They are disobedient. They are idolaters. They are unthankful. And left to themselves, they're really no different than all the surrounding nations that were all around them, from Egypt to the the, the Amalekites that they had already destroyed. They were were the same as those nations, which I think is what makes verse 11 so amazing because it says, for on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of the people. So a special God comes down to an unspecial people, an unworthy people. Notice again the language, but from a different perspective that we have in verse 4. He says, what I did. And then he says, how I bore you and how I brought you. You notice from, from, from a different angle, it's a reminder to Israel, you were powerless to do anything against Egypt. You are powerless to deliver yourselves. You're not special in any way. In fact, the only reason that you're where you're at now in front of this mount is because I brought you out and I set my gaze on you and I noticed you and I called you out and delivered you. Otherwise, you would still be in Egypt because you have no power in and of yourselves. And it's difficult for us to admit how powerless we really are. I have prided myself for many years at being able to accomplish hard tasks or multitasking. And some of the hardest words that I've ever had to learn in my life are these two words, I I can't. I just can't do it. I'm killing myself trying to, but I can't. But I like to think I can. And boy, do I like other people to think I can. Wow, look how much he can accomplish. Wow, look how trustworthy I can be and just 
He just takes it all. And I, I used to sit in the workplace. Hey, can anybody take this on? Yeah, I could do it. Hey, is this too much for you? Nope, not at all. I'll just keep going. Meanwhile, inside I'm going, I can't do this. And the sobering reality for all of us is that whatever is accomplished in our life, whatever material wealth we have, whatever deliverance from sin that we might experience, whatever health that we have, I mean, you, you name it, it's all God's doing. God is the one that's saying, listen, I bore you, I delivered you, because you can't. You can't do it yourself. And so apart from God, Israel is common, they're ordinary, but this is exactly the type of people God calls out. If you remember, God calls Abraham. No one special. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. God's going to use a shepherd in David to lead his people as king. Go fast forward to, well, you can go through all the prophets. They're no one special. Fast forward to the New Testament. Who does he call out? As his disciples, fishermen, tax collectors, nobody, nobody special, nobody unique. This is, this is what he does with us as well. He doesn't pick out the best. Okay, this is not a, if you're looking for, if you came here this morning for an ego boost, it's, it's not the message for that. Because, because we are not special. We are not great we're actually unworthy. He picks out the worst and he makes it beautiful. He calls out the unworthy, run-of-the-mill sinner and he makes them special. There's a funny thing about the kingdom of God is it, in that it doesn't operate like we think it should. Well, we think, pick out the best talented, the brightest stars, the best speakers, the best musicians, whatever you want to say, the, the best teachers, Pick them out because, in a sense, they're already special and gifted. But God says, look, I'm going to pick out the least and I'm going to make them great. I'm going to pick out the unworthy and I'm going to make them worthy and I'm going to make them special. And so often we tend to think that in order to be something, in order to make our mark, we need a talent we need an ability, we need a, an, an idea, right? We need a title. But in God's kingdom, which again is the only kingdom that matters, it's actually those who see themselves as nothing, that see themselves as nobodies, unworthy that God sets his gaze on. And God begins working in them to make them special. And when God sets his gaze on a people, God, number three, creates a special people. It always happens. When he, com when he starts a work in someone, he sees it to completion. God creates a special people. Notice verses five and six, though, because there's a condition attached to this promise. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Condition. 
you need to obey my voice and keep my covenants. Well, we've already established that we are not worthy people, just like Israel. Another way of saying that is we can't obey God perfectly, and we can't keep his covenant perfectly. Because we are sinful. And this is where I, I want to, to turn our attention to 1 Peter chapter 2. So you can, you can keep your finger, make a marker in Exodus 19. But let's go to 1 Peter 2, page 1014. Because to have a promise, hey, I'm going to make you a special people but, but actually, you're an unworthy people, un, unable to obey me, unable to keep my covenant. What real hope is there in that promise? And the hope is found here in 1 Peter chapter 2, as, as Peter sort of brings all of our text into perspective. It was already read for us, but I want to read verse Verses 4 and 5 again. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. There is one person who was born special. There is one person who is born worthy, who is special in the way that God is special, in the things that we described and so much more. There is one person who is born creator, uh, owner, and deliverer. And he's, he's all that we describe about God because he is God. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came to this world to fulfill this condition of obedience, and he did it perfectly. He is holy. He is the perfect high priest. He is the treasured son of all creation. And you might, you might be thinking now in your mind or asking yourself, okay, so just by Jesus coming and fulfilling this promise, fulfilling this condition, so now, now I'm included in this special people? Is that what you're telling me? Well, notice verses 6 and 7. Behold, I lay in Zion a, a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And, and notice these words here. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor of being a chosen, precious, special people, the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, this stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling, a rock of, a, of offense. And for those who don't believe, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. God's gaze is towards people of faith. People that, that is, people who admit that their sin brings eternal separation from God. It brings hell. And they place their full faith in Jesus Christ, that he lived, that he died, that he rose again for them. And so through faith in Jesus Christ, God is creating a special people. 
This is the only way that people will be made special. This is the way, only way that you and I will be made special. Because we cannot keep this condition. This is what he's going to do in chapter 20 when he gives the law. And the law is not meant to say, hey, do enough good and live up to this standard and then you'll be called special. The law is actually meant to say, hey, I can't keep this condition. I can't keep God's law. And so I need to find someone who can. And Peter tells us the person who can is Jesus Christ. So through Jesus and by faith in him, as we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and what he's did for us, done for us on the cross, God is creating a people, a special people, a people that are his own. He says this, you will be my treasured possession. We sing a song sometimes, our worth is not in what we own. It's not in the friends we have. It's not in the careers we have. It's not in our popularity, our athleticism. It's not in any musical abilities. It's not in our families. This is not where our worth comes from. We are valuable and special because God is a special God who treasures us. And he treasures us because of Jesus Christ. And we, we seek to find value and be treasured in all different ways. I've already listed several earlier on. But as we seek value in these things of this world, what we realize is these things don't give us satisfaction. They don't make us feel special. They often leave us depressed, sometimes suicidal. And they always leave us wanting more and more. And so verse number five, though, it tells us this, among all the peoples of the world, among all of my creation, God says, I, I have my focus on you and you are my treasured possession. What do we do with treasure if we have it? We protect it. We care for it. We highly value it. And so of all that God has in this world, dear Christian, he treasures you. He's creating a special people who are his own, but he's also creating a special people who are his, and I'm going to use the word ambassadors. It says, it says in, our, in our text in Hebrew, it says priests, okay? I'm going to use the word ambassador for this reason, okay? Um, because the, the ambassador is someone that is, is representing a nation, someone that's representing someone else. And so there's two aspects to that. One, there's a connection to the country that that ambassador is represented. There's a, there's a relationship there, but there's also an extension of that as that ambassador goes on mission for that nation. And I think this is, this is sort of the idea here. He says, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. And there's mission language here. So number one, as a priest, you're going to have access to me. Through Jesus Christ, you have access to me. But number two, you are to be a mediator to all people. You are now the go-between. It, it, not, not in a sense of forgiveness of sin, but you are taking this message of the good news of the gospel to a world that needs it. So your neighbor that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their savior, guess what? You're the ambassador. You're the mediator that's, 
that needs to be taking that gospel message to them. God is creating a kingdom of people who can come before him, who can enjoy life with him, and then who can spread this message of life around to a lost world. And it really corresponds to the promise to Abraham that what his descendants would be a blessing to all people. So one of the purposes of God, of God calling out a special people and creating a special people is to declare, to actually declare that God is special to those that don't know that. We point to a special God and we do this through loving service to him. We do this through loving service to those around him. And I think really keeping God's purpose in view is a key to living in the reality of being God's special people. Being special people is not to boast our own ego. It's not to say, look, hey, I'm, I'm special. You're not. The purpose is actually to bring even more attention to this incredibly special God in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 9. He says this, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. You're being made special so that you can proclaim to others that God is special. Lastly here, God is creating a special people, a people that are, who are like him. We see this in the phrase, a holy nation. A people who are holy like God is holy. Remember the Abrahamic covenant. God says, I will make you a great nation. Here is building on that promise again. God reaffirming this covenant promise to Abraham. And really, again, 1 Peter chapter 2 is bringing this into sharper focus. So this isn't God just creating a nation, but God's creating a holy nation, a nation like me. This is a special people that reflects a special God. And so through Jesus Christ, God is creating a people like himself who are able to live with him. Sinful people can't live with a holy God, but a holy people can live with a holy God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are set apart to live holy. We are set apart to be obedient. And notice here, first, this is so crucial. First, we are his treasured possession by mercy and grace. Then, we are on mission for him, living lives worthy of the gospel. Why do I say it's so crucial? Because we, we cannot get confused as to why God marks us as special. God does not mark Christians as special because of how holy they're living. God marks them as special and then he makes them live holy lives through the work of the Spirit in our lives and through conforming us into the image of his Son. He sees us as special because Christ has lived holy for us and because our, our full identity is in Christ. And that, that can never be changed. We are God's treasured possession, not because of what we do, not because of how good we are or we think we are, 
but because of how good and how great Jesus Christ was for us. As we conclude, why does God describe his people as a treasured possession? Why are we talking about ourselves as being special? And here's why, because it's for us to see a God who is special. And although you and I are unworthy, and boy, we we are so unworthy, he sets his gaze on you in love. And in grace and mercy, sees you, and through Jesus, he has made you special in his eyes. His is the only opinion that matters. And we need to be mindful of something. This is where I think the people of Israel struggled. Sometimes this specialness, being special to God, looks like wandering in the wilderness. Sometimes it looks like poverty. Sometimes it looks like persecution. Sometimes it looks like major health crisis. Sometimes it looks like getting stepped on or being a failure in the eyes of other people. Sometimes it looks like being unpopular. Sometimes it looks like rejection. Sometimes it looks like Jesus' life here on earth. And we know how his life ended, being crucified on a cross. But it's through this death on a cross that Jesus, the precious lamb, has made you special by faith. Christian, you are special because of Jesus. You are valued because of Jesus. Peter describes this as mercy. So you don't earn this distinction of being God's treasure possession. You can't earn it, but you can receive it. You can rejoice in it. You can rest in it. We spend so much effort wanting to be the special focus of someone. We spend so much time wanting to be valued by someone. someone. And this morning I ask as we close, in what ways are you trying to feel special in life? In what ways are you trying to be valued by someone? Because whether you identify as a Christian this morning or not, the desire that God has given you to feel loved, to feel valued, to feel special, can only be found in a special God who through Jesus Christ is creating a special people for his own possession. Let's close in prayer.